from Hama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Colin Dickey will join us to discuss craniocleptine. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. science show. Well, the human skull has often found a great deal of importance in the philosophy of the human mind. Since Franz Joseph Gall proposed his theory of phrenology, there have been numerous individuals fascinated by the shapes and crevices of the skull, even to the point of trying to steal famous individual skulls, a practice called craniocleptic. Well, joins today to discuss this fascinating story is Mr. Colin Dickey. Mr. Dickey is a noted author whose fiction and nonfiction works have appeared in Cabinet, Triquarterly, and the Santa Monica Review. He is the co-editor of Failure, Experiments in Aesthetic and Social Practices, and his new release, Cranioclepti, Grave Robbing in the Search for Genius, explores the story for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Dickey, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. And again, this is a very fascinating story, but I'm curious, how did you become interested in this particular story? Well, I had already known about Sir Thomas Brown, who was an English writer and a contemporary of Milton and uh, Shakespeare. And he had written in his lifetime what a tragical abomination it is to have one's bones gnawed out of one's grave. And lo and behold, something similar happened to him about 140 years after he died. And I, I always kind of just thought that was a random story until I learned that the Spanish painter Francisco Goya also had his head stolen. And at that point, I realized that, you know, maybe there's something, not quite an epidemic, but something like a fad or a trend. And one thing went to another, and I started learning about all these stories of famous people's heads going missing. And so that's kind of how the book came about. Mm. And in your investigations of these stories, did you find that this was actually quite an epidemic, like you mentioned? Well, I, you know, I ultimately found about six or seven stories of famous, you know, well-known people, you know, Goya, a lot of Viennese composers, uh, Joseph Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, the Swedish mystic uh, Swedenborg, that had had their heads stolen in these kind of unnatural situations. So, so yeah, so not quite an epidemic, but certainly, as you mentioned, uh, Franz Joseph Gall's science led to a, a good deal of panic about this. As these stories started to leak out, people were writing specifically in their wills, that they wanted to make sure that nobody took their head and went to all these great lengths to have their, their coffins covered in bricks and the like so that nobody could steal their heads. So even if there were only half a dozen cases that were really noteworthy, there was certainly a lot of fear that it was going to happen to, to you. Hmm. We mentioned Franz Joseph Gall, but perhaps we should go over exactly what Franz Joseph Gall was saying. Yeah, exactly. Franz Joseph Gall um, was a struggling medical student, and, and he couldn't get over the fact that other people could memorize things a lot easier than he could. And the conclusion he finally came to is that the one thing that all these other guys who could memorize things well, what, what they all had in common was that they had really big eyes. And I don't know exactly how he came to that conclusion, but it led to his belief that different parts of the brain control different aspects of one's personality and different functions, which is something neuroscientists still, still hold true, this idea of localization. 
but Gall took it one step further and posited if a different part of the brain was stronger in one area, it would actually bulge or it would sort of poke out and it would actually press on the skull and so that, that you could read the bumps on the skull and what became known as phrenology in order to find out about a person's personality or their proclivities, you know, were they going to be a serial killer, were they going to be a great mother, you know, whatever, depending on where their bumps were. And so Gall's notion of phrenology led to this notion that, that you could sort of gather up the skulls of people and, and learn about personalities. And in the case of the Viennese composers who were particularly afflicted in this regard, there was a hunt for finding that elusive category of musical genius, you know, that, that nobody was exactly sure where genius was located in the brain. So they started gathering up Haydn's skull and Mozart's skull and Beethoven's skull, sort of looking to see where their musical genius might have been imprinted on their skulls. Mm, so trying to see what particular protuberance was similar among all these composers. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the time, there was three outlying members of society. There were criminals, and there were the insane, and then there were geniuses. And these, these were categories that were almost like different species, sort of bordering on different species. And, and Gall and his uh, pupil, Spurzheim, who really took over with phrenology, they sort of theorized that if you understood these extreme cases, you could understand the sort of normal human that much easier. And so it's it was pretty easy to get sane heads from asylum cemeteries or executed criminals from the gallows, but if you wanted the heads of the geniuses, you had to do it through nefarious means more often than not. <laughs> and so it was pretty much relegated to, what, the grave robbers to go try and find these skulls? Yeah, I mean, they, what was interesting about the book was that each of these different stories, there were different motivations, slightly different motivations under this general heading of phrenology. And Haydn's head was stolen by a good friend of his who had known him in life, but who decided that Haydn's head would have the keys to musical genius. And so a couple of days after he died, bribed a grave robber and did the cover of night, dug up his still decaying body and cut off his head in this kind of gruesome manner and made off with the head and eluded Austrian authorities for the next 15 years trying to keep Haydn's head from going back in the ground. But as this kind of caught on, you know, more and more, the, you know, heads were basically just being stolen for profit. The guy who sold Thomas Brown's skull was just looking to make a quick buck. The, the idea was that you could sell it to phrenologists, so it was still you're making money off of phrenologists, and especially as the, you know, these famous heads became particularly noteworthy trophies and people really wanted the heads of poets or great thinkers to have them as part of their phrenological collection. Hmm. Did they ever find anything that was similar among the famous composers that were dug up? Um, not as far as I could tell. You know, yeah, I was kind of hoping that somewhere somebody would have published an article or written a letter saying, you know, aha, I've, I've found it. It's somewhere on the, the back left side of the head there's a little bump that all these composers have in common but in fact no i mean you know i think it was these things quickly became less objects of scientific inquiry and almost sort of like secular saints relic that you would have these things that yes they had some sort of scientific value but more importantly you had the head of haydn you know or the head of mozart and that was something special and magical in and of itself it's interesting that mentioned sort of like a sacred relic. We interviewed on the program Russell Shorto, who talked about Descartes' bones and skull actually being treated as somewhat sacred relics. Yeah, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, Russell Shorto's great book on, on Descartes' head was helpful, and his head was not necessarily stolen by phrenologists because it was stolen a lot earlier, mm -hmm. so it wasn't quite something that I spent too much time on, but... Certainly. I mean, there was a long tradition, I think, of sort of showing reverence for the bones of, of the dead, be they, you know, saints, relics, or whatever. And, and the interesting thing about these heads was that even as religious feelings were changing, people still maintained a little bit of that feeling towards bones, you know, skulls in particular, 
as the, you know, the seat of the, the mind and the soul. And even non-crazy philosophers like G.W.F. Hegel would talk about how the skull really represented the seat of the soul and of the mind, and that, you know, this would be the ideal part of the body to keep. You do chronicle a number of very uh, fascinating stories of various skulls. Were any of those particularly fascinating for you? You know, I, I think I really fell in love with the guy who stole Haydn's skull, this guy, uh, Carl Joseph Rosenbaum, who was, he was an accountant and a lover of music, even though he was not himself a musician, but he wooed the famous soprano singer of the Viennese musical community at sort of great personal risk. It, it cost him his job and a bunch of his friends, and it was this kind of almost Romeo and Juliet, the ill-fated marriage that he managed to make work. And it's just this kind of capable, middle-class guy who just really loved music in all of its forms and at some point decided that the way he was really going to make his mark in the world was to uh, steal his friend Haydn's uh, head. And so Haydn died right after Napoleon had invaded Vienna for the third time, and so there was a lot of chaos, and Haydn didn't get the state burial that he was due. It was, he was kind of buried in this small, dinky cemetery on the edge of Vienna. And so it gave Rosenbaum the, the opportunity that he needed to do this, but he, he struck me as a really complicated guy, you know, who had done this kind of ghastly, horrific act, but yet at the same time was capable of great tenderness and just sort of an upstanding friend and a well-liked man in so many ways. And you know, and I thought, well, how how odd that that somebody could be so normal and just like a good guy, but yet capable of doing something so weird and seemingly unthinkable. So. You know, I, I think I got really excited about his story. And then the guys, I think, and not just him, but the other guys who stole the skulls, I mean, often had these really fascinating life stories that, that came out on the page where, where this moment of skull stealing was a, an odd facet to complicated characters and lives. So. Do you think there was anything that linked uh, all the people uh, in terms of their personalities? Um, you know, well, well, both Rosenbaum, the guy who stole Haydn's skull, and Gerhard von Brüning, who was, uh, I, I don't want to quite say stole, but somehow came into the possession of fragments of Beethoven's head. It was, it was very unclear, and, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, whether or not this, this, could, this particular instance of, of Beethoven's skull fragments was quite stealing in the way that somebody's brazen as Rosenbaum was, but von Brüning had known Beethoven life. His father was Beethoven's best friend, and so had sort of grown up with him and then became a very famous doctor in his own right, so that when Beethoven's autopsy was carried out, it fell to, to von Brüning to, to supervise it. And so both Brüning and Rosenbaum had this great love of music and this great reverence of these wonderful men, but yet at the same time this, this desire to preserve a piece of their bodies out of the grave in this kind of way that I think strikes us as macabre. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, there's a singular passion that unites a lot of these characters and the way they went about, in their minds, preserving things for posterity. How are these skulls actually preserved? You go into it in some detail in your book. Yeah, well, yeah, because, you know, Rosenbaum kept uh, very clear details about what you do when you cut the head off a body that's only five days old and how you have to scrape away the, the detritus flesh and muscle and all that stuff and they in order to deal with the smell uh, they you know burned a bunch of incense and the doctor was actually in charge of it his face like turned black from the smoke of the incense they were burning so much of it i you know i guess it must have smelled really bad and then they stick it in lime water which is some of your listeners might know you know just sort of creates a, a chemical and that creates a, a really high temperature and it's, it's really good for boiling non-combustible material like bone because it'll 
clean off everything but the bone and sort of leave it. And uh, Rosenbaum actually got involved in some trial and error. Before he stole Haydn's skull, he did a practice run and, and stole the head of a relatively well-known actress, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Roos. But he really, at that point, didn't know what he was doing and botched the job of preserving her head, and her head ended up covered in algae and other kind of gross stuff and this sort of disgraceful butchery of, of this person's life. So that by the time that, you know, he had hide and skull, he, he turned it over to professionals. I think he didn't want to screw up another head in his possession. So, Well, it was very considerate of him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could say that. Well, again, there are a number of very fascinating uh, stories. Uh, the one, of course, I think a lot of people might be interested in is that of uh, Francis Goya, the, the famed artist. Right, but that's, you know, it's also the most mysterious one. You know, I mean, Goya had been exiled from Spain, and he had died in France in, in 1833, and it wasn't until the end of the century, 1899, that the Spanish government decided that they were going to repatriate his bones, that he was now a sort of celebrated icon of Spanish artistic heritage, so they send somebody out to dig up his grave and send his bones back and, and found that his head was missing. And, you know, it's, it's not clear exactly when during that 60-some-odd-year period his head was stolen. And of all the skulls that I write about in the book, it's the only one that hasn't been found or returned back to its rightful place. So it's, it's, I suppose it's still out there somewhere. You know, I mean, it's kind of the one open-ended mystery in the book because, you know, nobody ever came forth with Goya's skull and nobody was ever, ever able to, to even, you know, find record of it anywhere. It just has some, somehow vanished into the, into the darkness. On your blog, you have an article about skulls being used in Hamlet to play Yorick. Perhaps it's being used there. Could be, yeah, yeah. No, I know Jude Law. I think is right now. He's doing Hamlet in New York, and it, he made a point of of using an actual human skull for the York scene, and that's been a, a longstanding uh, tradition of great thespians having willed their heads to be used. You know, Shakespeare companies, I guess, uh, one way to keep on playing Shakespeare long after you're dead. But so, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? You know, maybe Jude Law's got Goya skull and buns. Yeah. The one of the things I think that I found that was really fascinating about these skulls is once you lose that sort of provenance of where they. They came from it's very difficult to ever figure out whose head they are especially before dna matches if you had a head it was really difficult to find out whose head it belonged to you, you the best you could do was compare it to painted portraits or death masks or these best approximations and, and look for defining features um you know i talk a lot about uh emmanuel swedenborg who's a swedish mystic he founded a sort of offshoot of christianity and his head was stolen in the late 18 teens I think um, and it was recovered and it was about to be sent back to Sweden in the early 20th century in like 1906 when somebody out of the blue wrote a letter to the Swedish embassy and said I think maybe you guys have the wrong skull I think maybe I remember seeing some other skull that was supposedly Swedenborg's in an antique shop 20 years earlier and this kind of random this letter that they got led to this this huge battle over you know which which skull actually belonged to Swedenborg's and the the methods they had for determining them were kind of best approximation so it's these fascinating ways in which you have this object that clearly belonged to a human but there's very little clues as to which human it might have belonged to. Hmm. Cranioclopy sort of came in a very particular period in history. Are there still people out there interested in skulls of humans? It, it 
really did it really did die away as phrenology fell out of fashion. You know, it was really phrenology was the, the main science that thought that there might be something special about the skull of a genius that might necessitate stealing it. And so as phrenology went away, that inclination died with it. And so all of the thefts that I discuss in the book happened pretty much between 1800 and 1850. And after that, nobody was stealing the heads of famous people anymore, which isn't to say that they weren't stealing the heads usually of Aboriginal and Indigenous people of various kinds for anthropology museums, and that's, that's led to an, an ongoing struggle of descendants trying to get their ancestors' remains repatriated from natural history museums and stuff like that. But certainly the, the genius head itself has lost a lot of its attraction. So the one exception to that, of course, would be some people may know the, the story of Geronimo's head, which gets mentioned in the book. Geronimo's head, which maybe was stolen by uh, George W. Bush's great-grandfather for Yale's uh, Skull and Bone Society. There's there's a skull on display in, in the Skull and Bone Society, which they claim is uh, Geronimo's, but it's it's not exactly sure who it was. And that skull was not taken for phrenology purposes. That was taken as a kind of noxious fraternity prank. So. <laughs> Might still be a lot of that going on, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and you, yeah, you hear these, you know, kids using heads to make bongs to smoke pot in and various things like that. So yeah, I guess that that aspect is still going on. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious if you could steal a skull, whose skull would you steal? Uh, you know, that's, that's something that I've been thinking about. Uh, we've been running a little contest asking people that, and I think partly because of the, the whole story of, of Geronimo, I think I, I would likely try and steal back Geronimo's head from uh, Skull and Bones and see if I could give it back to his descendants, because I think Yale have had it long enough. So. <laughs> well, I'm sure they would appreciate having it back. <laughs> Hopefully. So, yeah. Do you have any final words regarding cranioclepty? Uh, no, I mean, I would encourage people, we, yeah, we are running a contest and giving away books, and uh, if you, you go to the website, cranioclepty.com, there's, there's details to just asking, you know, what head would you steal, and I think there's a few days left if people want to want to engage in that. So. All right, well, very good. The new book is called Cranioclepty, Grave Robbing in the Search for Genius. Uh, Mr. Dickey, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on. And you were just listening to Mr. Colin Dickey discussing cranioclepty. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic to steal or not to steal. 
So for the falling five people, if they were deceased, would it be worthwhile to steal their skull or not? And maybe a little reason why. And Mr. Dickey, are you ready to play the game? Uh, yes. Okay, here we go. Person number one, to steal or not to steal, the skull of Brett Favre. Um, yeah, I would say yes, so that one might, in the phrenological society, learn more about how to throw the perfect pass. <laughs> and switch teams effectively, I guess. I guess so, that too, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, and uh, person number two, the skull of Oprah Winfrey. Uh, no, no, and, and no comment on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, number three, Richard Dawkins. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Richard Dawkins has, needs to be stolen for nothing else so that we can do unto him what he has done unto us in the, the field of understanding the mind. Okay. Uh, number four is the heiress Paris Hilton. Uh, I think only if one could also steal the head of her chihuahua simultaneously. <laughs> Those two seem to need to go hand in hand, or head in head, as the case may be. They might be the same size, who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Dickey, I want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and, of course, talking about uh, the new book, Cranioclepti, Grave Robbing in the Search for Genius. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.